Hi, and welcome to episode five of The Abnormal Psychologist. I'm your host, Dr. Colby Taylor, and today we're going to talk about the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, which we affectionately call the DSM-5 for short. Before we get into that, I thought I'd update you on my marathon prep and tell you about an incredibly painful experience I had yesterday. Uh, I think these updates serve as a sort of Ulysses pact for me. Um, if you'll remember from Homer's The Odyssey, uh, Odysseus, or Ulysses, asks his crew members to tie him to the mast of the ship as they approach the infamous sirens, uh, whose beautiful song was known to sort of hypnotize people into shipwrecking onto their rocky island. Odysseus wanted to hear the song without being shipwrecked because he heard it was very beautiful, uh, so he told them to strap him to the mast. Uh, and no matter what he said, do not, under any circumstances, untie him. Uh, the crew members tied him to the mast, plugged their ears with wax so they couldn't hear the sirens, and kept on going past the sirens, uh, despite Odysseus's mad thrashing about and screaming to cut him loose. So, essentially, I'm like Ulysses. I'm making a pact for the future, and hopefully you'll all hold me accountable. Anyways, the painful experience. I was running, and I swallowed a wasp. Um, I guess it could have been a bee or a hornet. Uh, but it was some sort of stinging insect. Uh, I immediately started retching, and I couldn't breathe for a good 20 seconds. Uh, the thing stung all the way down, and uh, I had my wife, Lauren, come pick me up in the car. Uh, my throat was super sore yesterday, but feels good enough for podcasting today, so thank goodness. Uh, the Ulysses Pact and also fighting through painful experiences, I think, do have psychological relevance. Um, if you're interested in being a badass who fights through pain, um, unlike me yesterday, um, I suggest you read the book, Can't Hurt Me, Master Your Mind and Defy the Odds by former Navy SEAL David Goggins. Uh, the dude runs a marathon on broken legs, so I have a feeling a wasp uh, down your throat wouldn't be that big of a deal for him. Anyways, to today's topic, which is the DSM-5. Uh, and since we're talking about the classification of disease, we're getting into nosology, uh, which is not the study of noses, that's rhinology. Uh, but the study of classification of disease. Uh, we're also going to brush on another ology, um, etiology or etiology, which is the study of the cause of disease. Um, as mentioned earlier, the DSM-5 stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition. It's a sort of blue-purple book that is about uh, 950 pages long, uh, 947 pages to be exact. Um, I have two in my office, and I'm looking at them right now. Uh, that's what I just padded was one of my DSMs. Uh, one is sort of blue and the other is sort of purple. Um, I'm not sure why the two are sort of different colors. Um, it's published by the American Psychiatric Association, which you see abbreviated APA. And this is confusing for those in the mental health world because uh, APA could also stand for the American Psychological Association. Uh, and to make things even more confusing, both APAs have blue logos and both are headquartered in Washington, D.C., and the DSM-5 was published in 2013, and you'll still hear people call it the new DSM, uh, despite it being seven years old. Um, and you'll, you'll find there's a lot of inertia in changing classification systems, uh, whether we're talking about the ICD, which I'll mention in a little bit, or the DSM, it usually takes a few years for clinicians to adapt and to adopt. The DSM-5 replaced the DSM-4-TR, uh, the TR didn't stand for T-Rex, it stood for text revision. And it was sort of an update to the DSM-4. Uh, the DSM-4 was published in 1994 and the TR came out in 2000. 
All the DSMs before the five contain Roman numerals, whereas the DSM-5, if you look at it, has an Arabic numeral. And there are different theories as to why this might be. One is that we as a society don't understand Roman numerals well that, that well anymore. Um, but look at Super Bowls. They still, you know, the Super Bowls use the Roman numeral system. So I don't know if I buy that. So do a lot of like grandfather clocks and stuff. Not that many people use those anymore to tell time. Anyways, another is that Roman numerals become unwieldy after a while, right? You just keep adding digits to them. Not digits. I don't know what they're called. And another explanation is that we might uh, be able to have updates, sort of like how Apple and Windows have updates to their operating system. We could have like a DSM 5.1 or 5.2 in the future. Um, the first DSM was published in 1952, again, in sort of that golden age of mental health, uh, where society started putting resources towards mental health after World War II. And it replaced the super politically correctly titled Statistical Manual for the Use of Institutions for the Insane. Uh, the DSM-2 was published in 1968, so what we'll find is a pattern of new DSMs coming out about every 15 or 20 years. Uh, the original, the OG, came out in 1952. Uh, the 2 came out in 1968. The 3 in 1980. And there was a revision to the 3 in my birth year of 1987. The 4 came out in 1994, and its revision came out in 2000. And then we had the 5 in 2013. Uh, the DSM system doesn't have the most inclusive of histories. Uh, homosexuality was pathologized in the one and then originally in the two, but then it was removed from the two. Uh, when we remove a diagnosis, we call it depathologizing. Uh, it was removed in 1973. And the APA continues to depathologize in response to societal changes. Uh, gender identity disorder uh, was removed between the DSM-4 and the DSM-5 though we still have a diagnosis called gender dysphoria, which I'll talk about in a different episode. The DSM-5 is a pretty huge shift away from the DSM-4. If you look at mental health records from the DSM-4, and some mental health records still use this sort of classification, uh, we had what was called a multi-axial system. So you might find your psychiatrist or psychologist to see your medical records, and you see something like axis 1, axis 2, axis 3, and so on. Now, there were five axes. Uh, most diagnoses were included in axis one, like major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, ADHD, and so on. And then we had axis two, which included personality disorders and mental retardation. Uh, these disorders were thought to be so pervasive that they affected your everyday life to a deeper extent than axis one disorders. And theoretically, you might not ever drop or get over one of these diagnoses. Then axis three coded for general medical conditions. Maybe you had hyperthyroidism, which can mimic anxiety or asthma, which is often treated using albuterol, which can make you hyperactive and appear to have ADHD. So this medical information was important and relevant. And then we had axis four, uh, where we could code psychosocial or environmental problems. So maybe you're a victim of abuse or neglect, or maybe you were unemployed, or maybe you lived in poverty. And these seem like pretty important things for mental health practitioners to know so they could be coded on AXIS-4. And finally, AXIS-5 was a Global Assessment of Functioning Score, or GAF, or GAF score. Uh, this gave you an overall number from 0 to 100, sort of like IQ, but this is on how well you function socially, occupationally, or psychologically. So a score in the 90s would basically mean you have no difficulties Whereas if you had really mild symptoms that affect you only occasionally, you'd usually be assigned a score in the 80s, on down to the 20s and teens, which meant you really couldn't function outside of acute psychiatric care or hospitalization. 
So the DSM-5 doesn't use a multi-axial system. The axes are gone. Uh, the GAF score is gone too for a few reasons. Uh, clinicians would assign wildly different scores to the same person. So there was poor iterator reliability. Uh, a 90 for one clinician might be another clinician 70. Um, and also many clinicians would lowball their initial GAF score. And then after months of therapy, they would inflate their final GAF score to show insurance companies that their treatment was working. And lo and behold, almost no clinicians lowered their GAF scores over the course of treatment. Um, the other axes were done away with um, as the DSM-5 is supposed to conceptualize disorders more holistically. And you can't separate out medical conditions and social conditions from psychological conditions, right? They all exist together. They're inseparable. They're interdependent. Uh, remember the previous episode on the biopsychosocial model. They all exist on a continuum. Also, we have the acknowledgement that all mental disorders can be pervasive, right? Major depressive disorder uh, can certainly affect every aspect of your life. So the distinction between previous axis one and axis two diagnosis wasn't so clear cut. It takes a lot of work to create a new DSM. Uh, the DSM-5 took over 14 years to create and involved a task force of 27 members. And each of these members had essentially their own task forces um, answering to them. So, and all over 1,500 experts contributed to the creation of the DSM-5. In addition to eliminating the multi-axial system of the DSM-4, uh, the DSM-5 is going to take a more lifetime developmental perspective and discuss varying symptomology uh, throughout the lifespan more explicitly than previous versions of the DSM. Um, it also more explicitly addresses culture. And again, I'm going to have a whole episode dedicated to culture down the road. Um, when you're flipping through the DSM-5, you'll find 20 chapters. And I'll just read the chapters to you, the names of the chapters to you. Um, and Though we'll have episodes based on each chapter uh, very soon actually starting with the next episode. Um, we have neurodevelopmental disorders, schizophrenia spectrum and psychotic disorders, bipolar and related disorders, depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, obsessive compulsive and related disorders, trauma and stressor related disorders, dissociative disorders, somatic symptom and related disorders, feeding and eating disorders, elimination disorders, sleep-wake disorders, sexual dysfunctions, gender dysphoria, disruptive impulse control and conduct disorders, substance-related and addictive disorders, neurocognitive disorders, personality disorders, paraphilic disorders, and then other mental disorders. So as I mentioned earlier, the DSM-5 places more emphasis on a developmental perspective than previous DSMs. Generally speaking, the disorders towards the beginning, like neurodevelopmental disorders, are the disorders you'd expect to find earlier in the lifetime. Whereas disorders towards the end, like personality disorders and paraphilic disorders, which are sexual disorders, aren't diagnosed during childhood. Uh, there are some exceptions, like the schizophrenia spectrum disorder chapter is second in the DSM-5, but childhood schizophrenia is incredibly rare. It only has a prevalence of like one in 10,000 kids. If you open up to a diagnosis, you'll see some numbers next to each diagnosis. Uh, let's take intellectual disability, which is actually the first diagnosis listed in the DSM-5. Again, part of the first chapter, which is neurodevelopmental disorders. Uh, the numbers help with medical coding. So for intellectual disability, if I see the number 317, I know that it's mild intellectual disability. Whereas if I see 318.0, uh, and many will have uh, decimal points, 
I know that 318.0 is moderate intellectual disability. If I see 318.1, I know that it's severe intellectual disability. And if it's 318.2, I know it's profound intellectual disability. Again, the numbers are used for coding. I'm not sure, by the way, why mild is 317 and the other severities of intellectual dis, uh, disability are 318 and have decimal points. Um, but it's fun playing DSM trivia with colleagues. Um, I'm pretty good at matching codes with diagnoses. Um, you also see letters and numbers in parentheses next to the diagnostic code. So for mild intellectual disability, you see 317, and then you see in parentheses uh, F70. The F codes um, from 0 to 99 correspond to the International Classification of Diseases, or ICD codes. And the ICD is an alternative nosology to the DSM-5 that is published by the World Health Organization. Um, it has just about every medical condition under the sun as a codable diagnosis, including mental health diagnoses. Uh, but luckily for us, the ICD and the DSM criteria tend to align pretty well with one another. And the ICD also takes a long time to prepare and for clinicians to adopt. Uh, many medical facilities are just switching from the ICD-9, which was published in the late 1970s, to the ICD-10, uh, which wasn't adapted in the United States until the 1990s. And the ICD-11 will be released New Year's Day 2022, uh, but it'll probably take years and maybe even decades to be adapted in the United States. And interestingly, the ICD-11 has a gaming disorder as a diagnosis, and that's something the DSM-5 lacks. Um, but back to the star of our show, the DSM-5. The DSM-4 had uh, diagnoses that ended in NOS, which meant not otherwise specified. So if you had a diagnosis of anxiety disorder NOS, that means you didn't fully meet diagnostic criteria for any of the listed anxiety disorders, but your clinician believes that you truly do have an anxiety disorder. Uh, this was sort of problematic though, as some clinicians would throw out NOS diagnoses like candy. Um, and since one of the main purposes of diagnoses uh, is to create a common language between clinicians, an NOS diagnosis might come across your desk if you're a clinician and not be that informative. You don't really know what it means. Uh, with the DSM-5, we no longer have NOS diagnoses. Um, however, we do have labels of other that we can add on, like anxiety disorder other, or labels of unspecified, like anxiety disorder unspecified. And that latter option might be used when dealing with a sensitive topic and the clinician especially wants to protect their patient's privacy. The DSM-5 also allows for specifiers and subtypes. For example, we have the diagnosis of conduct disorder and we might choose to attach a specifier like uh, with limited prosocial emotions to the diagnosis. Many, dis many disorders um, also allow you to specify the severity of the disorder. Uh, we saw that with intellectual disability, right? Mild, moderate, um, severe, profound. As you're flipping towards the back of the DSM-5, you'll encounter a list of disorders that did not have enough research or validity to make the cut, if you will, for the DSM-5. And these are called conditions for further study. And many of these disorders have promising research behind them and they'll likely be in future editions of the DSM, uh, but the task force didn't think that they uh, passed muster for this edition. Examples include caffeine use disorder and internet gaming disorder, which again, the ICD-11 is going to have a gaming disorder diagnosis. So uh, these conditions for further study shouldn't be diagnosed clinically, um, but it's important for clinicians to have these on their radars. Um, also towards the back of the DSM-5, we have the glossary of cultural concepts of distress. 
Remember, the DSM-5 places increased emphasis on culture. So there are eight disorders that exist in other cultures uh, that are listed. And as a clinician, uh, you might have a patient from, say, India or Bangladesh. And they present to you with a complaint of DOT syndrome, D-H-A-T syndrome. And you likely have no idea what this is from your Western psychological or psychiatric training. But lucky for you, you can flip to the back of the DSM-5 and find that many young men in South Asia um, or South Asian cultures um, attribute low energy or anxiety to semen loss. Um, you'll also find uh, analogous diagnoses in the DSM-5. So under DOT syndrome, you might see major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder. Again, we'll do a whole episode on culture down the road, but it's important to realize the DSM-5 is created by the American Psychiatric Association. So many diagnoses might not hold outside of America. Um, I do think it's commonly used in Canada. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, send me an email. Uh, but many other countries and cultures have their own diagnostic systems. Um, so let's open the mailbag. Uh, I do have a question. And the question is, in a previous podcast, you mentioned that people would get paid to keep the mentally ill under control and hidden. When did that fully stop? Was it seen as morally wrong? And these are great questions. Short answer, maybe it hasn't fully stopped. Um, we have disability checks for family members, and this is a provocative question. Uh, but are these similar to the stipends that were paid uh, back in the late 1700s and early 1800s for, for um, keeping uh, a, a mentally ill family member? Um, long answer, after Dorothea Dix's advocacy in the mid-1800s, uh, attitudes did begin to change. Uh, it doesn't seem like many people uh, thought the locked-away house model of treatment was morally wrong uh, before the mid-1800s. In fact, you'll find writings from uh, religious leaders that say uh, it's necessary for the moral correction and guidance of the mentally ill, the sort of house-prison locked-away model. Um, the sort of attitudinal shift probably happened in the late 1800s. And by the early 1900s, asylum treatment was seen, seen by many as being more compassionate. Uh, but again, many families, such as the Kennedys, continued to hide away their mentally ill family members until the mid-20th century. Uh, unfortunately, you can see this in many special education classrooms in older schools around the country. Um, often these classrooms uh, are in the basement or were in the basement, and they were essentially isolated from the rest of the school. So great question. Please keep sending mailbag questions to ctaylo41 at cbu.edu. That's it for episode five. Uh, in episode six, we'll discuss the most prevalent disorders in the United States, um, which are anxiety disorders. Until then, stay well and take care.